All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, I do thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy that just uh, overwhelms us. So Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts now by your word, through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 6. Lord willing, today we'll read chapter 6 and chapter 7. Barring the rapture of the church in the next hour, which will be cool. My notes aren't that good, right? I'll take the rapture. Um, So, we find ourselves... I think I need to give a little preface first. A little... um, um, not disclaimer, because I don't want to undo or, or um, dilute any of the, basically these are strong words, and I don't want to dilute them in any way, shape, or form. But we need to keep in mind a couple of things. Number one, we read the entire Bible, right? The hard part and the easy part, right? The fun part, you know, there's parts of the Bible that make you just say, Aww, right? Those parts and the ouch parts. Okay? Is that fair? You okay? You okay? All right. Today is a couple of ouch chapters. All right? And with that, we need to keep in mind that we're reading two chapters of the Bible. And so we need to keep in mind the the whole Bible and the whole counsel of God and all of the attributes of God, okay? And sometimes we hear, you know, you ever heard people say, well, there's the God of the Old Testament, there's the God of the New Testament. Have anybody ever heard that, right? But we know him to be the same, right? He has different attributes, but we know him to be the same. And a lot of times, I think, frankly, because um, the Old Testament is so much about the history of the nation of Israel and their insistence on walking away from the Lord and serving idols that a lot of the Old Testament is about sort of dealing with that. Okay? Does that make sense? And so, um, so I don't think we need to worry about is there a difference between the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament, but God is completely loving and he's completely just. And sometimes it feels like those might be in conflict, but they're not, okay? And so we'll just transparently talk about what's gonna talk about today, and there you go. Does that feel like a disclaimer? Yeah, it does, but it's not really. So Ezekiel is in Babylon. He started prophesying uh, around 592 B.C., he, uh, five years prior to that, he was carried off captive to Babylon uh, from Judah uh, in 597 B.C. Again, you recall, the Babylonians conquered the nation of Judah and the capital city, Jerusalem, in basically three different conquests. The first was in 605 B.C. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were carried off uh, in that conquest. The second one was in 597 B.C. Ezekiel's carried off in that conquest. And for our purposes today, as of the second conquest, you know, there's, there's, you know the, the Jewish people kind of saw those as a couple of skirmishes. Like, you know, the Babylonians kind of beat us the first couple of times, carried off a few of our people captive. But we think that, you know, because we're religious people, we're God's chosen people, surely that's it, and surely those people are going to come back from Babylon, resettle, uh, you know, here in the next couple of years or whatever, and we're going to rally our troops, and we're going to, you know, stand on our strength, and we're going to restore our kingdom to its former glory, or our nation to its former glory, and all of that sort of thing. And the reality was God had different plans. And God's plan was that in 605 B.C., 
finally, once and for all, for the third and final time, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians would come in and basically just decimate uh, the nation of Judah and the capital city, Jerusalem. And in the process, um, that would be the end of that. But the Jews would be carried off captive and, and held there, basically. Uh, they would stay in, in Babylon for 70 years, and then, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, they would return back to Jerusalem, back to Judah, and resettle and um, establish themselves as a nation again. And so the point is that uh, God never forsakes his people, God never abandons his people, but God does deal with sin. And that's just the reality uh, that we have to accept. In our lives today, God does deal with sin. That's the bad news. For the wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 6. But what? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He does deal with sin, and he did it through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so um, that's our reality, and we can thank him for it. But... um, the reality at the uh, time of the nation of Israel here, as Ezekiel is prophesying, uh, he's trying to basically get through to a rebellious nation. All right? Got it? Ready? Game on? All right. So last week, through uh, a couple chapters, chapters four and five, uh, God gave Ezekiel these sort of what we called action sermons. Um, that showing that Babylon would come. He, he had, remember, he had this clay tablet and he kind of drew out and made these sort of little stick figures, maybe, of, of a Babylonian siege. And he said, the Babylonians are gonna, Babylonians are gonna come and they're gonna, they're gonna siege, basically, which means they're gonna surround the city and starve everybody out. And that's how they were gonna come. And God was prophesying that through, through that. He prophesied through Ezekiel that, uh, remember he told him to lay on his side for 390 days and then flip over on the other side for another 40 days. That was to communicate that the reason of the siege was because God was bringing judgment on the nation. And and then he had him drink uh, rationed water and defiled bread to signify that there's going to be hunger and starvation and tremendous poverty. And then finally, uh, God had Ezekiel shave his head and his beard and throw the hair into three different, set the hair into three different piles. And the significance of that was the first pile was, would indicate that, um, that a third of the people are going to die by starvation and pestilence. Uh, A third of the people are going to die by the sword of the Babylonians. And a third of them are going to be scattered. And that's basically how it played out uh, as God uh, predicted. And so these chapters that we see, so that kind of sets the stage for, you know, God's statement, basically, I'm bringing judgment. I'm bringing judgment. It's going to come in the form of the Babylonians. There's going to be hunger and starvation, and um, uh, it's just going to be ugly. But it's it's part of the it's it's because of the judgment on their rebellion. So he starts out verse chapter six. Now the word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, saying, "Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God." Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, and to the valleys. Indeed, I, even I, will bring a sword against you, and I will destroy your high places. So he starts out, number one, God is speaking to the entire nation, the entire land. Not just Jerusalem, but the mountains, uh, you know, the mountains, uh, the valleys, the hills, the ravines, everywhere. And uh, he's making the point that God is going to bring judgment to the entire nation. And he also makes a point, and I think this is interesting, this is important for us to distinguish in our minds. He says, I will bring a sword against you. Now, who's going to come and physically wipe out the the Jewish people in 605 BC? Who's going to come? The Babylonians are going to come. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. The soldiers are going to come. But who does God say is really coming? He says, I will come. I will come. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? But against the rulers and authorities and and high places and and all of that. The reality is sometimes we might think that our enemy is the, you know, the person across the table from us or, you know, across the sword fight from us or whatever. But it's much bigger than that. 
And in this case, sometimes we can find ourselves, catch this now, we can find ourselves fighting against God. Maybe not to the death, right? To the pain, right? Not quite to the death. But we may find ourselves fighting against God or struggling against God in some way, right? And how do we do that? By our rebellion. By our rebellion. Because if we fail to surrender to God, if we fail to serve God, to accept the leading of the Holy Spirit, if we demand our own way, and you know how this plays out. It plays out different for all of us. It plays out, I think, in my life, honestly. At different times in my life, it's played out different ways. But the reality is, is it my will or his will, right? I really want this. Be careful if you say, I really want this. You might get it to your detriment. But if we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, as Jesus prayed in the garden, then we find ourselves sort of God fighting on our behalf. But God doesn't fight us just to punish us necessarily, but he, likes to di- he, he, he loves his children, so sometimes he disciplines his children. Sometimes he punishes his children. Along the way, there's always opportunity for repentance until we take our last breath. And so he says, I will bring a sword against you. Make no mistake, Babylon will be the physical agent that's coming to destroy Jerusalem and Judah. But God is the one that's fighting against them. And so God is very clear about that. And so whenever we choose ourselves or our own will over a surrendered relationship to God, we find ourselves, maybe in small ways even, fighting against God. Notice also he says here, and I will destroy your high places. There at the end of verse 3. I will destroy your high places. These high places were the places where uh, the... Jewish people chose to serve their pagan deities. And so you got to understand, they didn't fully reject God. And this is important as we go through here. They did not fully reject God. They did not say, we are no, we're, we're just turning our back on God. He left us. We're, we're you know, he, he didn't meet our needs. Uh, we're disappointed in all of that. We're, we're denying the existence of God. We're, none of that. But yet they worship God and their pagan deities. And we're like, hey, whatever works for you, works for you, and whatever works for me, you know, why can't we all just be one big happy family and, and have no absolute morals and have no absolute right and wrong? And, you know, I, I like God today and I like Molech tomorrow and I like, you know, Baal on Tuesday. And that's kind of how they live. Does that sound like any society that you might think of? Ours ours. Ours. We're a what kind of nation? If you read about it, in the, I don't know if you could Google it, we are a Christian nation, right? You hear people say that? We're a Christian nation. Am I the only one? Have you heard people say we're a Christian nation? Good, good. We're a Christian nation, right? God thinks we're a Christian nation? I really wonder what he thinks when he looks down at our, at our nation, at our society, at our highly developed, civilized nation. And I wonder, I wonder what he thinks when we even would call, when we would have the audacity to call ourselves a Christian nation. I shudder to think what would go through his mind as we call ourselves a Christian nation. But really, one of the points I want to make today is, as I read these chapters, I see tremendous parallels between the nation of Judah at this time and the nation of America at this time. And I wouldn't say, I mean, God's, God's God. You've got to be careful where, you know, 
It's easy to kind of go through, you ever do this? You go through these sort of logical things in your head. I mean, I do this as I'm, as I'm, even as I'm preparing what I'm going to say. Uh, you go through these logical things in your head, and if you're not careful, whoops, you can just slip off the edge, right? Like, God's going to bring judgment, right? I'm not doing that. But if God brought judgment to America, would I say, wait a minute, we don't deserve that? Would I say that? Would I say, hey, God, why didn't you warn us? Would I say that? No. And curiously, if you look at, uh, you know, most uh, commentators on Bible prophecy, they'll tell you, where's, what role does America play in end times events? None. Is that sobering? That's sobering. So, I'm not saying God's bringing judgment. I'm just saying... You know what? Our society looks kind of like this nation that he judged. We couldn't say we don't deserve it. Um, we're reading these words here today. You know, most Americans, because we're a Christian nation, have a Bible somewhere in our closet. So we can't say that, you know, the warning wasn't available to us. And uh, we can say it's curious that the United States is not a factor in, in end times events. So... We have to read these words with a certain sobriety. Verse 4. He says, Then your altars shall be desolate, your incense altars shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain men before your idols. And I will lay the corpses of the children of Israel before the, their idols, and I will scatter your bones all around your altars. In all your dwelling places the cities shall be laid waste, and the high places shall be desolate, so that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate, your idols may be broken and made to cease. Your incense altars may be cut down and your works may be abolished. The slain shall fall in your midst and you shall know that I am the Lord. So the word altars here is mentioned seven times in these verses, right? God doesn't like their altars. He's going to destroy them. And interestingly, the word idol here is mentioned three times. Now this word idol is a Hebrew word, golalim. Okay, you don't have to memorize that word, but it's a favorite word for Ezekiel. You know, we see the word idol throughout the Old Testament, right? But this particular word that's translated idol is used 48 times in the Old Testament. 39 of them are by Ezekiel. So it's kind of like Ezekiel's pet word for idol. And the literal translation is, um, uh, where's it at? Pellets of dung. Pellets of dung. Now, I'm being recorded, so I won't give you a modern translation of that, right? But pellets of dung is what he's calling the idols. He's saying, I'm going to destroy all your basically worthless idols. All your trash, all your garbage that you worshipped. That you worshipped. Isaiah 42.8 says this, I am the Lord... And that is my name and my glory I will not give to another. Let me read that again. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. So when they're worshiping God and all these other idols, they're giving away God's glory. When we, as human beings, try to steal any of the glory that God deserves, we're stepping on thin ice. He says, my glory I will not share with an, I will not give to another. Then finally notice here at the end of verse uh, 7, he says, then you shall know that I am the Lord. He repeats this over and over in these chapters. Then he goes on, he says, yet I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered through the, through the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which, was de which has departed from me and by their, own, by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evils which they committed in all their abominations and they shall know that I am the Lord." I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. So he says, I've not said in vain that I'm going to bring this. I have warned them. And to America today, I believe God has warned us. To us today, there's several things I want to 
point out from these verses here. First of all, God always leaves a remnant. He says, yet I will leave a remnant. You recall last week we read the, the, in the, in the uh, sort of action sermon of, you know, God told him to shave his head and his beard and put him in three piles, right? One would be part, represent starvation and pestilence, one would represent sword, and one would represent uh, the dispersion, right? But he noticed he said, he said there in chapter 5, um, he said, yet you shall take a, chapter 5, verse 3, you shall take a small number of them, of the hairs, and bind them in the edge of your garment. It was a picture that a remnant would always be tucked away and preserved from judgment. Are you comforted by that? Yeah, for sure. How do you make sure you're on that list of remnant? This is sovereignty versus responsibility 101, right? How do you make sure that you're a part of that remnant? You say, I'd like to be a part of that remnant, right? It's no more complicated than that. Lord, please help me be a part of that remnant, right? And so if God does bring judgment on our nation or whatever, however that works, right? We can say, Lord, I want to be a part of that remnant. And God always preserves a remnant. And that's a beautiful, a beautiful hope that we can hang on to. In this case, the remnant, he says, will remember me and then they'll repent. And then they shall know that I am the Lord. So again, he mentions that again. In this case, they shall know that I am the Lord is for restoration. In the other mention, it's uh, they shall know that I am the Lord uh, for judgment. The reality is everybody sooner or later is going to know that he's the Lord. Right? Philippians chapter 2. One day, every knee. What's every mean? Every single one. Right? Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day that's going to happen. We can look forward to that, right? I mean, that'll be the great unifier, right? Won't be, won't be any political divides. Won't be any uh, family discord. Won't be anything like that at that time. Everybody's going to be in agreement. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We'll all be on the same playing field some for salvation and some for judgment. But we all will acknowledge him. You know, the reality is this idea, then they will know that I am the Lord. God just wants to be acknowledged. God wants to be acknowledged. And God wants to be worshipped. And in this case, you know, the Old Testament talks about God as like, you know, the husband and it carries that and that carries into the New Testament. We, are, we the church, are the bride of Christ and, and all of that. And we need to keep in mind that we don't serve a religious system. We don't serve a religious system. We surrender to a personal, loving God who wants to have intimate fellowship with us. So much so that he, the, the analogy that He gives us through the Scripture that we would understand is the relationship of a husband and a wife, right? A very intimate relationship. And God describes this. He says, I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me. That would be painful. That would be painful. For them to still claim to be a you know, quote-unquote Christian nation, and yet their heart would be adulterous. This is a relationship as God sees it, and it needs to be an exclusive relationship, just like marriage. Just like marriage. He goes on, thus says the Lord God, verse 11, pound your fists and stamp your feet, so there you go. If you want to throw a fit, biblical precedence for you right there. Kids, got this? Thus says the Lord, pound your fists and stamp your feet. Taking a little out of context, but wouldn't be the first time, right? And say, 
Alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die by the pestilence. He who is near shall, die, shall fall by the sword. And he who remains and is besieged shall die by the famine. Thus will I spend my fury upon them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Again, it's written there. With, when their slain are among their idols, around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree and every thick oak, wherever they offered sweet incense to all their idols, so I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate. Yes, more desolate than the wilderness toward Dibla and all their dwelling places. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So, more proclamations of judgment, two more mentions of then they shall know, and... Um, and we see the heart of God. The heart of God is broken for these people. The heart of God loves these people. He doesn't want to punish just for the entertainment of punishing. He wants to get their attention. And as I've, I think I said this last week, by the way, at the time these words are spoken to the Jewish people, had these things come to pass yet? No. So what's God doing? He's warning them. Why does God warn his people? So they can repent. He's always, he's always summoning us for this opportunity, giving us an opportunity to repent because he always wants to draw us into closer relationship with him. Chapter 7, he goes on a little bit. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel. An end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you. And I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways. And I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity. But I will repay your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So again, God is loving. God is also just. And we want to be on the right side of that. He always gives us the opportunity. He always gives us opportunity to repent and to be on the right side of that. But what's interesting is even when he says, then you shall know that I am the Lord. That doesn't mean then you shall be a believer and follow after me. It just says, then you shall know, right? Because we follow the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? It's possible to have an intellectual understanding of, yeah, then you shall know. When every tongue will every knee will bow and every tongue will confess everyone will know but not everyone will surrender right revelation this these words are always chilling to me revelation chapter 9 verse 20 this is after the rapture of the church and lots of destruction during the great tribulation it says this but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. Picture this. You're on planet Earth during the end times. Boom. One day in the twinkling of an eye, all the Christians just disappeared. Right? And then after that, there's catastrophe after catastrophe after catastrophe like has never been seen before. Like crazy stuff. Death and destruction everywhere. And you say, and so much so that no doubt you would quote unquote know that he is the Lord. But you would stomp your feet and you would dig in your heels and you would say, I refuse to repent of the works of my hands that I should not worship demons nor idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And I did not repent of my murders or my sorceries or my sexual immorality or my thefts. The human heart is capable of tremendous, tremendous hardness. So we've got to be careful about that. We don't want to fall into that trap. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, a disaster, a singular disaster. Behold, it has come. The, an end has come. The end has come. It has dawned for you. Behold, it has come. Doom has come to you. You who dwell in the land, a time has come. You get the idea that a time has come? A time has come. 
The day of trouble is near, and not of rejoicing in the mountains. Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will repay you for all your abominations. You know, the reality is there's a window of opportunity with the Lord. There's a window of opportunity. For us, there's a window of opportunity for salvation, right? We want to surrender our lives to the Lord, accept the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord before we die. But within that, we also want to find ourselves surrendered to Him, surrendered to His will, denying our own flesh, denying our own strength, not uh, walking in our own understanding, day by day, moment by moment, to basically uh, enjoy the blessing of that fruitful relationship with God. Does that make sense? There are opportunities. There are windows of opportunity in this life. Sometimes they close. God says, a singular disaster has come. An end has come. The end has come. It has dawned. Behold, it has come. Doom has come. The time has come. You get the idea? The window of opportunity will close one day. We all face God one day. No one's exempt. He says, verse 9, My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. So there's a big difference between pity and mercy. Okay? He says, I will not have pity to those who, re who refuse me, to those who reject me, reject me, reject me over and over again. I will not have pity. And yet, to those who say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Please save me. Please help me. I'm a sinner who, am, uh, who, am sa who is saved, but I stumbled today. Please save me. Please restore me. Please pick me up. God has tons of mercy for that person. You heard me say, I, th I think, uh, a couple weeks ago. You know, there's some verses you can read that sound like judgment. There's some verses you read like... Um, we're a work in progress and God is working on us and God is doing that work to conform us into the image of his son, Romans chapter 8, right? That we're, that we're predestined to be that way, right? Romans chapter 8, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. We read that he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Who's the finisher? So let's say, I don't know everybody in the room, but let's say we're all Christians, so we could say, therefore, he's the author of our faith. That started. That began. Right? We have a faith relationship with him. That he's the author of that. Who finishes it? He does. He does. Right? Remember what, what Paul told the, the Galatians, right? Basically, if you got saved by the work of the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Is that how that works? No, God continues to sustain us. God continues to grow us. And so there's tons of mercy with God. God, when he was describing himself, his own character to Moses, he says this, I'm merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. But he goes on, he says, I'll, but by no means clearing the guilty. So for the person that says, I'm trying, I'm stumbling, I'm having a hard time, I need help. Man, he's there. He's the author and finisher. He who began a good work will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. But there's another kind of person that says, I don't care what he says. I'm not having it. I'm not refusing my own will. Right? If you cross your arms before God, right, then these are the kind of verses that we're talking about. Right? And so, of course, none of us are that way. None of us have ever been that way. None of us will ever be that way. So we read these verses sort of for the other guy, right? But that's the reality of God's nature. God is both merciful and yet, he says, my eye will not spare. 
Verse 10, behold the day, behold it has come, doom has gone out, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded. So again, the window of opportunity. Notice he says pride has budded. You know, when you see a fruit tree, before it buds, there's no indication that it's going to bud, right? But when it buds, you see, you see it grow, right? The flower gets bigger, and then ultimately there's fruit that comes out of that, right? But before it's there, I mean, I suppose I'm not a botanist, but, you know, the DNA is there. It's going to happen, right? Even though you don't see it, the DNA is there. All the material is there. Everything's ready to go. Just waiting for the opportunity. In this case, same thing. Pride has budded. So oftentimes, you don't see the pride. You see the fruit of pride, but you often don't see the pride. Pride is often below the surface. So what does pride look like? Any manifestation of me demanding my own way, me having a high opinion of my own opinions, me having a high opinion of myself. Well, can we all fall into that a little bit? Yeah. I don't want to demand my own way with God. He's smarter than I am. He knows better than I do. So we've got to be careful that pride doesn't bud in our lives. Verse 11, violence has risen up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, none of their multitude, none of them, nor shall there be wailing for them. So violence rises up from within into a rod of wickedness. You ever notice when man makes his own destiny without the higher authority of God? How does that work out? Basically, they, and you can look at this historically. What do societies do when they, do, when they deny God? They self-destruct one way or another. Sooner or later, they self-destruct. Man cannot, and maybe this is too absolute of a statement, I don't think, let me just say that, I don't think man can really govern himself. His track record's not that great to govern himself. Verse 12. He gets, now he gets in for the rest of this chapter, and we'll talk about this through the rest of this chapter. Basically, all the things that don't work that we tend to put our security in. You ever notice this? When we do, when we do say, I'm demanding my own way, I'm going to write my own ticket, I'm going to chart my own destiny, we do that relying on certain resources that we might have. Does that make sense? For example... The time has come, verse 12. The day draws near. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn. For wrath is on their whole multitude. For the seller shall not return to what has been sold, though he may still be alive. For the vision concerns the whole multitude, and it shall not turn back. No one will strengthen himself who lives in iniquity. And so, you have to understand the economic system of, of the culture, of the Jewish culture according to the Old Testament law. You know, if a person became destitute and became poor, they might uh, sell a property or even sell their own services, if you will. Uh, but basically, like sell their property to uh, somebody else, right? It was not quite as free of a transacting type society as probably what we have. But then during the year of Jubilee, it was supposed to go back to the original owner, okay? after a period of time. So, you know, he says, let not the buyer rejoice nor the seller mourn, right? It's kind of a picture, at least the way I would read it, kind of a picture of, you know, the buyers come on hard times, I mean, the, the sellers come on hard times. He's got to sell, let's say, a piece of property to the buyer. The buyer rejoices because he's got a good deal on the piece of property and he's accumulating his wealth, right? So, the buyer might feel good about his acquisition, but that doesn't do any many good during time of judgment, right? 
it's not going to, you know, when the Babylonians come, it's not going to matter who owns what, right? You recall, well, several weeks ago now, God told Jeremiah, hey, why don't you buy a piece of land, <laughs> right? Jeremiah's like, really? You know, buy a piece of land, the Babylonians are going to come, they're going to wipe everything out, I'm going to have a worthless piece of land here, really? And it was a picture that, yeah, they're going to come back. Your people are going to come back after 70 years. But the idea is, during time of judgment, the buyer, he's no better off. The seller, he's no better off. And the seller who might think he's going to get his land back in the year of Jubilee, he's no better off. Right? Why? Because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. For the vision concerns the whole multitude. The rich and the poor. They have blown the trumpet and made everyone ready, but no one goes to battle. For, wrath is on, for my wrath is on all their multitude. The sword is outside and the pestilence and famine within. Whoever's in the field will die by the sword. and Whoever's in the city, famine and pestilence will devour him. So we might think, let's say as Americans, we might say we can demand our own destiny. We can deny the existence of God. We can deny everything that God says in his word. We can, uh, as, as they did in the time of the judges, we can uh, decide what's right in our own eyes. We can do that. And by golly, part of that is we're going to have great military strength. Is America a little proud of its military strength? Yeah. I mean, should we have some military strength? Yeah, it's, it's a good idea for a society, right? But these things sort of go hand in hand a little bit, right? Like we're going to we're going to be on top of the world and we're going to do it with our military strength. Well, that's what the Jewish people kind of thought. You know, they blow the trumpet, make everyone ready, but no one goes to battle, he says. Because remember who they're fighting? They're fighting God. They're not fighting the Babylonians. He's, My wrath is on all their multitude. The sword's outside, the pestilence and famine are, are inside. Who's ever outside will die by the sword. Whoever in the city is going to die of famine and pestilence. Right? That doesn't sound like a very strong army. Right? So during times of judgment, does military strength have any value? No. Not for fighting against God. Not for fighting against God. Verse 16, those who escape, who survive will escape and be on the mountains. Like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning, each, with, each for his iniquity. Every hand will be feeble and every knee will be as weak as will be as weak as water. They will also be girded with sackcloth. Horror will cover them. Shame will be on every face. Baldness on all their heads. So, there'll be some that will think, all right, so the military didn't, didn't make it. Buying and selling didn't make it. I know what we'll do. We'll survive and we'll escape and be on the mountains. We'll be like doves in the valleys. Is really what they're going to be. They're going to be mourning like doves. Right? But they had this idea like, we'll, we'll escape and be on the mountains. You ever notice this mentality? Like, you, like we're going to, we'll just get away. We'll, we, we can escape judgment by like going to some remote hideout somewhere. Right? Some of you aren't old enough to remember Y2K. Remember Y2K? Raise your hand if you remember Y2K. Right? Raise your hand if you lived in a city in the months and years leading up to Y2K. A few of us, okay? We lived in a city. We lived in Indianapolis, right? I remember in the years, a couple years leading up to that, there were a group of people that we knew that were having meetings. You know this is going, right? So, sorry. I can't resist. Having meetings about, like, we're going to buy land in the country, right? We're going to buy land in the country. And then we'll get all set up, and, and it's the first time I ever learned the word prepper and what that meant. But but first step of good prepping is to live in the country, right? And I remember, like, you know, we all have to be, if we're honest, we all have to confess a little bit, right? Like, I was, like, you know, a little place... It was not on my radar at that time to move to Madison, by the way. Uh, Tracy and I, neither one. But we were like, 
You know, a little cabin in the woods wouldn't be a bad idea. Right? Maybe a little, I don't know, filtered water in a cabin where nobody could shoot me. Be all right. Right? Does that work? If God is bringing judgment, does, I'll just say it out loud. Is prepping of any value if God is bringing judgment? I said it. Okay? No. Zero. Right? Is money of any value? Zero. Is military strength of any value? Zero. Right? Any effort to survive and escape to be on the mountains? Zero. They will throw their silver into the streets, and their gold will be like refuse. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They will not satisfy their souls nor fill their stomachs because it became their stumbling block of iniquity. Even, this is interesting. So, we're in a, uh, economically in America right now, right? I'm a little intrigued with economic ups and downs because they happen so often, right? You can kind of have opportunity to study every cycle if you want, right? And what do people do sometimes as a, uh, uh, use, the, use the word, hedge against inflation? What do you buy as a hedge against inflation? Gold. 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 That's what they say. I'm not advocating that by any means. I'm not. I'm not a broker. <laughs> but what happens when time of judgment comes? What are you going to do with What are you going to do with your gold? Sell it to your prepper friend? Right? Trace and I always used to, you know, in those days we'd laugh like, you know, you kind of play out these scenarios in your head. We're kind of like, okay, so let's say we're like the only guy in town. Let's say we're the only family in our church that's got a year's supply of bread, right? And the rest of you are all starving, right? And you all line up in my front door. And I decide which one of you I'm going to give my bread to. Right? Like, you don't want to be that guy. Right? There's some responsibility. If, 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 if it does work to be a prepper, I don't think you want to be that guy. Anyway. I went too far off on that. But if, also, if you're a guy that has a pile of silver and gold. God bless you. Right? You'd be better off with a surrendered heart. Right? That's the point. You'd be better off with a surrendered heart. As for the beauty of his ornaments, he set it in majesty, but they made from it the images of their abominations, their detestable things. Therefore, I have made it like refuse to them. I will give it as plunder into the hands of strangers and to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they shall defile it. I will turn my face from them, and they will defile my secret, pla my secret place, for robbers shall enter it and defile it. So, you know, again, uh, you know, the Jews made all their abominations out of silver and gold only to be plundered by the Babylonian robbers, right? Even their original, like, utensils in their, te in their temple, right? The silver and gold utensils that they thought were, you know, the beauty of their ornaments, right? Remember Belshazzar? Fast forward 70 years, right? Belshazzar's last night of life. He's having a big drunken party there in Babylon, Brings out all, he says, hey, let's grab the, all, those, all those drinking vessels that we got, that we plundered from the temple in, in Jerusalem. And let's have a big party with those. So they're drinking all their, out of all their Jewish goblets, right? That was the night God brought judgment. But the point is, those all went to Babylon. All the ornaments went to Babylon. Plundered by robbers. Robbers shall enter it and defile it. He says, Make a chain, for the land is filled with crimes of blood, and the city is full of violence. Therefore, I will bring the worst of the Gentiles, and they will possess their houses. I will cause the pomp of the strong to cease, and their holy places shall be defiled. Destruction comes. They will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster 
will come upon disaster and rumor will be upon rumor. Then they will seek a vision from the prophet, but the law will perish from the priest and counsel from the elders. This to me, if you've zoned out, I understand. Come back now. Because this to me is perhaps the closest to home for us as believers. Money's not going to work if God brings judgment, right? Survival to the mountains is not going to work if God brings judgment. Gold and silver are not going to work if God brings judgment. Great military strength is not going to work if God brings judgment. And can I tell you this? Religious ceremony will not work if God brings judgment. Even Christian religious ceremony will not work if God brings judgment. Having a Caleb bumper sticker will not work if God brings judgment. Having a gold star church, we were talking about earlier, having a gold star church will not work if God brings judgment. He says, Therefore I will bring the worst of the Gentiles. Please notice that sentence. He says, I'm going to bring the worst of the Gentiles. You see, what was happening in Jewish culture was we're untouchable because we're God's chosen people. We have the oracles of God. We have Abraham as our father. We have Moses as our lawgiver. We have, we have, we're God's people. We're God's spoiled brat kids in his family. But there's, and, and, and we're better than everybody else. You get this? We're better than the, quote, worst of the Gentiles. God stuck that phrase in there, I believe, intentionally. Hey, by the way, those people that you think are the worst of the Gentiles, they're the ones that are going to come and thump you. The worst of the Gentiles is going to overcome the pomp of the strong to cease, and their holy places shall be defiled. Pomp. What do Christians sometimes, as they regard the worst of the Gentiles, and Gentiles, you got to understand, Gentiles, to the Jewish mind, we might say like heathen or sinners, right? Them, right? And so you got this divide, this great divide between the pomp of the Jewish people and the New Testament corollary is the pomp of us Christians is so much greater and so much superior to the worst of the heathen. Are we guilty of that in our history? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. The pomp of the strong will not survive. The holy places in and of themselves are not going not to work. It says they will seek a vision from the prophet. It's not going to happen. The law will perish from the priest and the council of the elders. So empty religion will not work during times of judgment. You notice there's a lot of things not going to work during times of judgment. Surrender and repentance does. And that's the only thing that does. And then finally one last thing that won't work. The king will mourn. The prince will be clothed with desolation and the hands of the common people will tremble. I will do to them according to their way and according to what they deserve, I will judge them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. What's the final thing that won't work? The security of government will be of no help. The security of government will be of no help. And oh, how often I hear this. If you're on the left, you say, well, if our, if our person gets in office then everything's going to be great. If you're on the right, you say, well, if our person gets in office, it'll be great. Right? No government apart from God is sustainable. Regardless of the ideology. The king will mourn, the prince will be clothed in desolation, and the hands of the common people will tremble. No government security. So, 
Kind of a pick-me-up day, you think? Right? Makes you want to say, yep, we read the whole Bible, <laughs> right? And uh, some of it's warm and fuzzy and some of it's not. But you know what? Shame on us if we don't heed the warnings of God. Shame on us if we don't learn to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge Him and let Him direct our paths. That lean on my, I, I've said this many times before, trust in the Lord with all your heart. As a Christian, I get that. I can say, yeah, I'll trust in the Lord with all my heart. And, you know, it's a journey for all of us, right? And I'm, I'm working through it, and just like you're working through it and all that. And lean not on your own understanding. That's the part I have challenge with. I think I'm a pretty capable guy, right? I can amass a little bit of silver and gold. I can, you know, vote for the guy that I think is smart. I can, you know, worship in church. I got killer church tenants. I told you last week, I got great church tenants, right? Because I have to, right? Uh, you know, I can, I, can, I, I can escape on the mountain. I live, you know, I, I, I live in the country, right? They can't shoot me, right? All of these things, right? I live in a country that's got a great military. Thank God for them, right? All these things, if we're not careful, are just, they fall under the subheading of lean on your own understanding. And there's nothing wrong in and of itself with those things as long as we don't lean on those things. And so, at the end of the day, God wants a relationship with us. God wants a relationship with us. For God so loved the world and every human being in it, whoever has lived or ever will live, for God so loved all of that that he gave his only begotten son. You imagine having a son that you would give as that kind of sacrifice? Knowing that you're God, that these people don't deserve it. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever should believe in him. And believe in him doesn't mean, if you look at the Greek word there, doesn't just mean like, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Believe in him means to trust in him, to rely upon him, to adhere to him, to abide in him. So for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him. By the way, what does whosoever mean? Whosoever. Who's excluded from whosoever? Nobody. Nobody. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him doesn't have to go through that kind of stuff that we just read today, but should have everlasting life eternally with Him. How that works, I don't know. What's it going to be like? I don't pretend to describe streets of gold and mansions and all that, right? Because whatever I think it is, it's, it's better. Whatever I could dream up, it's better. That's the destiny that awaits us as believers. So we can rejoice in that. We can rejoice that we always have opportunity to be the remnant. Even if God does bring judgment on our nation, we can rejoice that we are the remnant. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that your word is truth, that your word gives us clarity, your word gives us warning, your word gives us grace and mercy. 
And through your word, we have the peace that passes understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we, we just want to be your children in fellowship with you. And we thank you, Lord, that you desire that. You desire that so much that you made it possible for us. So have your way with us, Lord. When we stumble and fall, please get our attention quickly and pick us back up. And help us to walk with you day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.